Welcome to Probate Weekly. I'm Bill Gross. We do this every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, and we live stream it on YouTube, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We get together every week to talk about all things related to probate. Now, not necessarily direct on probate as an attorney, but indirect, a big part that we deal with regularly is evictions and heirs who don't want to move out and related topics. And we're excited to have today not just somebody who does evictions. I regularly see in chat boxes where people say, you know, do you know an eviction attorney in this area? There'll be a stream of people saying they know somebody. Not just somebody who does fills out the paperwork for a basic eviction, but really, in my experience, um, the expert on complicated evictions in Los Angeles County. And I, and I say that, I've, I was thinking about, as I prepared for this call, Eileen, I work with you on three different angles. I came in on a case where my client was opposing, I guess, your client, um, I think it was a partition action how it started, but it was related to a probate that I was involved with. Then another case where my client on a probate had already hired you to evict a commercial tenant. And then I've also worked with your firm. When I referred a client to you, you did a great job. And as a result, my client got uh, satisfaction and I got paid as a real estate agent. So I've really worked with you on three different angles, not just filing basic papers, but in all three cases, pretty difficult, um, pretty difficult transactions. So Eileen, thank you so much for taking time with us today to share your expertise in uh, real estate law and evictions here in Southern California. Well, thanks for having me, Bill. Now, you seem like such a nice person. I think you are, in my experience. How in the world did you get into the world of evictions? And then how do you do that and maintain your smile? Um, well, I initially got in because um, for a short period of time, for about five years, I worked for a uh, foreclosure defense firm. So we worked for like Fenny, Franny Mae, Fetty Mac, Aquin, Penny Mac, like all of those loan servicers um, in defending these cases that were trying to invalidate deeds of trust or stopping the foreclosure procedure. And those servicers would send the post foreclosure evictions to the mills, but they were never really easy. They were always contested and the mills couldn't really or didn't want to handle the contested matters. And so they would come through our office and I started doing them. Um, but then really when I went out on my own, when I joined a networking group, it's the easiest thing for people to understand. Um, people need evictions, they need to remove it. And at the time I did help tenants and landlords. Um, I don't tend to do tenant work at all anymore just because of where our, my practice went, but it was easy to market. And then it just started like, word of mouth. And then I, I had a property manager follow me out of a courtroom one day and say, who are you? Where do you work? I want you. Uh, and that's how I got the first property manager. And now we have dozens of property manager clients and 75% of our revenue is on eviction work. Now you mentioned that um, you don't do tenant work. And uh, is that because of a business decision that you don't want to have conflicts or is yes. it just more efficient? Yeah, uh, most of it was because with property managers, you truly don't know the owners, you may not have all of the information. Um, and so there is that really high potential. And plus, if these property management companies want to hire me, they don't want right. me defending their tenants. No. And plus, most of the time, if they can't pay the rent, they probably can't pay me either. Right. So let's talk a little bit about what that looks like. What percentage of your business is commercial? Because as, as I was reflecting in on, on our experience, it turns out uh, two were commercial. One was a lot that could have been residential, but was really commercially being used. What percentage of your business is commercial versus residential? 
Yeah, out of the 70% of a whole business is UD. I would say a very small percentage is commercial, probably 5% is commercial. Most of what we do is residential, but our PMs do have some commercial properties and then I get individuals that come and need help with commercial, but it's predominantly um, residential. Got it. How much, so it's interesting, I, I guess I caught three of however many you did last year um, by, you know, I'm a mathematical anomaly in your, uh, uh, in your practice. Um, how much different is the commercial eviction process than residential? Oh, it's so much easier. Um, you know, there's very little affirmative defense in a commercial where in a residential, they can throw out all the habitability. And, you know, I suppose that a commercial could do discrimination too, but there's just so many things related to residential that can be an affirmative defense to clog up the process that just are not available in commercial. So your practice, I know you're based in Torrance. Yes. And so what areas, I, I, what areas do you service or areas don't you service? So it's easier to say what I don't service. I don't do uh, Ventura, Santa Barbara, San Diego, pretty much. So you do all of LA County, all of Orange County, Riverside, and San Bernardino? Yeah. Okay. And so how would you describe the differences between, say, LA County, where most of my business is, and, say, Orange, San Bernardino, Riverside? LA is a nightmare. Every other county is beautiful. Like I had a consult today with somebody that has a, a property like in Huntington Beach, and I, I don't have to worry about checking my little notebook for all of the procedures or just cause or rent caps or this or that, or did you give this? Did you post this notice? Um, every county but LA is in, in our, I mean, obviously up north, they have their own issues. Um, but yeah, LA is um, very, very hard to navigate if you're not familiar with the rules because so many cities have different rules, different numbers, different things um, that you have to be very careful in LA. But in Orange County, typically it's county rules and each city kind of complies with those counties? Yeah, so county in, in Orange County, there's only one city that I'm aware of that has fallen to some kind of other thing other than the state law, and that is Santa Ana. Um, everything else is just like it is normally and, and applicable for the state law of um, the Tenant Protection Act. There's no other requirements in any other city but Santa Ana. Now, when we talk about the eviction process post-COVID, there's post-COVID, but there's also now new laws since COVID that have added new restrictions. So if during the COVID period, you describe you know, the difficulty of getting you know, uh, tenants out as a nine out of 10, or eight out of 10, I'm not, I'm not sure how you would describe it. How would you compare the difficulty in LA County specifically now with the new state, county, and uh, city uh, changes? Well, I think that you have to put them into two different categories. You have non-payment of rent. You know, those are you know pretty straightforward um, to prosecute now, as long as the rent was due after a certain date. Um, you don't have many restrictions. The only restriction you have in LA is city now is that you have to have a threshold dollar amount. So if they only owe five hundred dollars of rent, you have to wait several months until they hit that threshold mark part. Um, the other is just cause. So you know, when you have somebody that is selling an estate property or a property in general, they want to be able to remove the tenant um, or the occupant uh, to be able to sell it. Um, in LA, that is extremely difficult. Um, in LA City, that is even more difficult because of all of the just cause. Because under 
uh, the city rules, there's like really only four ways you can terminate a tenancy. Um, and when you're selling it, none of them are going to be applicable because, um, you know, you it, there just isn't. It's owner occupancy or a substantial remodel um, are really the two that you may be able to use. But if you're just, you know, trying to sell it as an asset in a, in, in a state, um, you're not going to be able to do that. So it, it's extremely difficult to get somebody out um, if you don't have cause in L.A. County. Got it. Some quick uh, housekeeping. We're really lucky today to have as our guest a woman who is an expert in uh, real estate evictions here in Los Angeles County. Eileen Kendall. Kendall Law Firm is the firm. KendallLaw.net is the website. And there you can get information for contacting them and uh, kind of an overview of their firm and what they do. And if you want to contact them, how to do all that. So thank you for uh, Eileen being on our call today. This is Probate Weekly. When we're done today, you can continue the conversation on our Facebook group, Probate Weekly. We have over 3,600 members there. You can ask questions, look for referrals for agents out of state, attorneys out of state, as well as post your probate-related content. Love to have it on there to help you promote your business or promote ours. And then if you want more information about this program, Probate Weekly is the program. You can register. If you're watching this online, you want to get notifications, you can register at probateweekly.com, as well as a link to our podcasts and YouTube uh, of the same thing. And then lastly, I have a real estate email marketing class, because I think email is such an important tool for real estate agents. Um, and if you're interested in that, just send me a text or email. I'll be more glad to give you the details. That's going to be on February 21st. Um, <clears throat> okay, so we got some uh, good questions here already. <laughs> I've been talking about you coming on to other clients of mine, and, and they either are jumped on or they're asking questions. I, 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 I think I just want to warn everybody, Eileen's great at answering questions, but she's not going to give you legal advice because she's not representing you uh, as a result of these phone calls. So we're really talking more in general terms and such. So one question that comes up regularly in, as a real estate agent is when a property is foreclosed on, there might be some either a tenant who has a lease that you know was taken out before the foreclosure and would continue theoretically after. What's the effect on a lease agreement on a residential property when a property is foreclosed on? Yeah, it's been a long time, but if I remember pro pro uh, the process is once a foreclosure is complete, it's a three-day slash 90-day notice. Um, and I think there's certain steps that the tenant has to do uh, because sometimes, obviously, a foreclosing entity does not have the lease. They have to establish certain things with respect to being an actual lease. Um, so it's kind of a process of a, a if, if they, unless they've changed it, it's a 30 slash 90 days uh, or three days slash 90 days. Where the tenant is obligated to provide proof that there is a lease otherwise. So is the burden on them to prove there's a lease? So if they just orally say, hey, we've been here and here's canceled checks, does that, does the court? You know, if I, said? yeah. So if I remember correctly in a foreclosure process, if they can't establish they are an actual tenant, because like when I was doing that in my my uh, foreclosure defense firm, there was people that were uh, illegal leases, like somebody yeah. on uh, what was the... I can't even think of the database that people used a lot of times. Um, but um, if they can't establish they have a lease, they have to vacate in three days. If they establish they have a lease, they have 90 days to vacate. Oh, they have 90 days. So the lease doesn't survive past that time period. Not after, not on a foreclosure. Oh, that's that's fascinating to know that. I didn't know that part. Oh, that's worth the price of admission today. Thank you so much. Um, one of the questions asked is kind of pricing. So I think I know some of the answer here. So somebody who's interested in engaging your firm, uh, unlike some other firms, you don't have a menu 
of services you really start off, I, at least my experience with you, is with a consult to see what the, the right procedures are. So to describe a little bit for somebody who's interested in retaining you, what, what does that process look like? Yeah, I think that it really depends. Um, you know, there's some people that can just, if it's a straight three-day notice and there's no really uh, things to dive into, they can just hire us and then it's on that structure. But typically it's a 240 for a half hour consult where I get all the information, say whether or not this is something I can help with. I usually give a, okay, this is what we'll do. Um, and then to move forward, we um, are, uh, again, it depends on the file. So if it's an eviction, it's a $7,500 retainer. Uh, we bill hourly. It's not, it, it is refundable if, if it gets done early. Uh, it has to be replenished if it takes longer. Uh, but our hourly rates range from $250 for our paralegals. Um, our associates are $450. And when I'm working on a file, it's $495. And so the first step would be a consult. And I think this is the thing to me that kind of weeds out clients from tire kickers is i'll get prospects on the phone who ask me a lot of questions and i'll say well i'm not an attorney you're cutting i know the basics but i don't know the details here that's why we have an expert and 24 dollars is enough i think to flesh out people if they're talking about a house worth a half million dollars a million dollars it's just part of the expense of owning a property if they're not willing to pay that they're probably not serious enough in doing business with you so to me it's it's enough to weed people out it's not so much that should scare them off and it's just interesting that my clients who move forward with you got what they wanted and then some, and the ones who didn't, I think to this day are still trying to do it on their own. And as it was, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you laugh uh, and I laugh. That but that, but that means I don't get paid. I mean, the, the, it is funny, and I do feel you're like I want to say the customer told you so, but they would also say, "Well, gee, I haven't sold the property, you even got paid either." And it's true that as an agent, my job is to bring the best resources to my clients, and 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 that's why I do these interviews. I can send this interview to my client to say. This lady is not playing around. She's what what you want on your team if you're going to do this this kind of business. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so can you sell? Next question I got from Matt Price, a regular. Hey Matt, how you doing? Can you sell the property underneath the tenants, or is it locked in for the probate those areas? So, <clears throat> I'm, Matt, I'm not sure I understand your question exactly. I've sold property with tenants who were subject to being evicted, and the buyer just assumed that risk. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, the the, uh, the issue that we have is we often see people who are squatters coming in, mm -hmm. and of course they don't have a lease, valid or otherwise. Right. So the issue that we have is if it's in probate, and we have to sell the property if uh, if because there's a tenant there, if it's locked into probate that they can't be moved out, or if we have to go through the entire foreclosure process all over again. Okay, I so just one what is a winning Elaine is uh, Matt's not in California, just for starters. Okay, so and that's what I was going to say. I know that you have people that are uh, from different jurisdictions. I only practice in California. I can only give advice as to California. Um, so for anybody else that's listening and may have things, uh, there is a very different distinction between a squatter and a tenant uh, in California, specifically in Los Angeles County. There are very different rights associated with a, a tenant versus a squatter. Depends really on a squatter is somebody that has entered without authority, broken in at night, something like that. I handle lots of those. The notice requirements are very different. Um, and they're, they're in LA or California in general. Uh, usually I, I get, I have fiduciaries that hire me to be able to remove these types of squatters prior to a asset being sold. Um, and I guess it depends on, in your state, 
if, if somebody has full authority to administer the estate in any which way, they don't have to get court approval. They're just processing it and getting people out so that they can sell the asset. Because typically in California, the biggest part of an estate is the is the, the property and they have to sell it to divide it among the heirs. All right now, and I just asked the question in general because uh, what what generally happens is, as soon as the ambulance pulls away, uh, and the family has nothing to do with the property anymore, it's usually when they go rushing in. Um, so, and it's common around here for us to find people who shouldn't be there there. Yeah. I had a I had one a couple of years ago where the guy across the street, I think the guy maybe had a heart attack or something. And literally while the body was still there, took the keys from the guy uh, and uh, moved in and tried to say adverse possession for the home and trying to make claims to it. I, I, I've seen it all. But yeah, we have a lot of that where family members, I, I had one where there was a forged deed. Um, we had to get the, the deed determined to be a forge and then had to remove them. And then they were trying to get a life estate and all. I mean, uh, yeah, we've seen it all. But as long as you have the right person that knows what they're doing, uh, they should be able to remove them. It just sometimes takes a lot longer than you ever wanted it to. But I, I don't think there's been any circumstance maybe once that I didn't remove somebody. Yeah, you had we the case that I had with you. Thanks, Matt. Case I had with you, um, that I came in on uh, the commercial case was just a nightmare. And this guy had just almost tortured this family for years on several properties and you were able to get him out. And it was just... Um, you've, I've, cases that I've seen. So I think the, the, uh, you mentioned two categories, you have tenants, which is one category, squatters, which are just people who rush into the property. And because we deal with probate, there's a third category, which would be people who maybe were allowed in by the decedent. Maybe they were a girlfriend or nurse or caregiver or child. They were allowed in the property for, uh, uh at the time, but they own own the property and they're not going to own the entire property uh the, you know I, I guess i would refer them as an occupant uh and that's one of the areas i want to talk to you about because you know i find that customers you know when you don't know you don't have confidence and that's why i urge them to talk to you because once they realize it's not really that hard to get those people out because especially if they're an heir um lisa my one of the things that you i think you taught me on a prior call was really you can end up charging back those expenses to their share of the estate. So you have some leverage with them to get them out. Can you talk a little bit about the process of getting out a occupant who might be there legally initially, um, but and also might be an error on the estate? Yeah, so their term is an at-will tenant. It is somebody, and there's a case that is where we cite in our notice, uh, and it, it's, you know, somebody that is invited in to stay. There is no determined length of time. There's no rent paid. It's just like whether it's a caregiver, a girlfriend, um, or something like that. It is an at-will tenancy. Um, and what that means is it can be terminated at any time by either party by 30 days written notice. Um, and typically in the process when somebody passes away, um, I handle quite a few of these. It's, you know, you have to give notice of death and 30 days. So it's a notice of death of owner and termination of at-will tenancy. You cite the case law, you tell them they have 30 days to get out. Um, and then you just start the legal proceedings um, after that. Um, it, and it's it's a lot more straightforward than other ones. I mean, we did have one where we had that it's 
in the city of LA, um, and sometimes judges just get it wrong. Uh, they determined that this person had some tenant rights and, and wouldn't remove them um, based on that notice. We had to do something else. Um, but it was still, um, that is typically the process, whether it's an error. Um, the other types of cases where you have an error in situations is, um, I had one that was the sole heir um, was um, a drug addict. Um, he was using the house to make meth and had people coming in out on all the time. And they needed to sell the asset to be able to care for him because it was a special needs trust. Uh, we tried to work with him and, you know, we had a, a, a I don't, not a caregiver, but somebody, you know, like, look, we will pay the the trustee has an obligation. We will pay the security deposit in the new place. We'll pay the rent. You need to move out. Um, and um, But to care for him for the rest of his life, they needed to sell the asset. But we had to do an eviction and we did it on a three-day notice to quit because of the illegal activity. Um, so there is other options depending on the facts of the case, but that one was a little bit different that, you know, he was an heir. Um, he was the, the mom and dad were dead and now he was staying, but we had cause because of the, the drug activity. One of the, uh, one of my uh, regular and clients and good friends <clears throat> involved in tenant actions has a question on YouTube. If you're watching on live streams, you put questions in there. I can follow them as well. Uh, a case where there's a squatter, <clears throat> but the squatter leaves for whatever reason. Uh, I had one once where they were in jail. Uh, they squat, they're in jail and they want to come back. Um, are you able to, if they're squatting and they leave, retake possession of the property, change the locks, secure their uh, property and lock them out? Or is that a problem and you still need to evict them when they come back? Well, I think that it really depends. Um, you know, if it's really like they have um, established a home, uh, it, it's just typically not the case. If it's like... Uh, a trashed place and they're, you know, I, I had one out in Riverside that, you know, they were jimmying the wiring and had a generator and laying on a, a you know, a sleeping bag. Um, I think that if you can establish that there's nobody there and there hasn't been anybody in a long time and they have absolutely no legal right to being there, um, it's just, it's dicey. But if, you know, you know that they're not there anymore, I mean, think that they're going to come back and yell and scream. But if you you have to secure the property, um, you know, that's your obligation as um, a, a fiduciary, a trustee and, you know, uh, whatever administrator of an estate or an owner is you, you've got to secure the property. Um, and usually in those situations, the property is not in a good condition and it's something that is kind of more trashed um, is at least secure it change the locks and then if they come and try to assert some right then call counsel and try to deal with it at that point every owner in that kind of circumstance that i talk to is afraid that they're going to get sued back yes that's why i said it's a dicey is thing that, to, to lock somebody out is it is it realistic does that happen do, do owners get sued back regularly and are liable or found liable in cases i've never had a circumstance where uh, a squatter moved out and then it was a matter of resecuring the property because um, then they would never have reached out to me. I'm always having to remove them. So I, I don't know what the statistics on that would be. Okay. Um, now, I know you don't do probate as such. And you know, we talk about that, that you're that you're doing with a, a part that's tangential, but critical to those of us in the probate business. One of the things that I found 
with other attorneys is that as long as we can document the actual costs that a um, what was the term you used for a t uh, uh, at will tenant who overstays their welcome, an heir, let's say, who who uh, doesn't have the right to stay there but stays and forces legal action, is that we can count the costs of lost rent, legal fees, and such, and then when it comes time to distribute the the um, the inheritance to deduct that from their portion of it. And oftentimes, just the, the itemization of that and presentation to them will cause them to realize they're going to end up spending all that money for no reason. It, have you been involved in that part of the process at all? Is that something you've seen happen? How would you advise somebody on the likelihood of being able to get that money back? Um, are you, are, are you, I just want to understand, are you saying like, as a part of the probate, you're listing out your extraordinary costs and expenses to be offset from any distribution? No, what I'm, what I'm saying is that there might be three heirs and the one heir who's causing the eviction costs and the legal costs and the lost foreclosure that the, those charges would be deducted from their portion of uh, their beneficial interest in the estate. Yes, and that's so, kind of what I said. Is that you're yeah. you're you're going to offset their yes. distribution by whatever. Right. Um, you know, I've not. You know, that would be for a probate court to decide if there's those offsets. I know, and I don't know if it's the one that because I don't remember which one it was, but I know that there was a one or two commercial ones that I worked on that they were certainly going to do that because mm -hmm. of the heirs being the ones causing the problems that they mm -hmm. were going to do an offset. But I think that that's going to require. Um, approval in the probate process when you're doing the final sure. petition for sure and i think i think it, it ends up being more negotiating point than it is an actual fact as if to say hey if you move out we'll avoid all these expenses but ultimately you're gonna be you might be liable for that so that's how we end up using it as well yeah no it definitely could be used for leverage but i think that ultimately with that you're going to get that approval uh from the probate judge in um the final distribution petition one of the things I find regularly is that I'll I'll encourage my client to take a more proactive action, whether it be consult with you or move forward with the the eviction process. And I don't know if there's anything magical you say that I don't, but you say with confidence that they feel, okay, this is legitimate. So how do you how do you see your role in educating the client and empowering them as far as their options? Meaning there's a there's a legal action that you take, but there's also, I think, an education role and a motivation role that you play as the attorney as well. No? Well, I think that when I have my consults or I, I have a client, it, it's walking through the facts. Um, a lot of times, what can I do better? Um, you know, it, and that's more in, in people that have more than one property. Um, but it's just kind of going through it and getting all of the information um, and ensuring that they've, you know, because a lot of times people are coming to me before the process starts, like consult I had today is we have this person that's here and, and we just want to make sure that we're protecting our rights and that we're not waiving anything and just walking through um, how that looks and what the different options are. So to kind of change the top the discussion just a little bit, let's talk about, you know, Eileen, the businesswoman. Um, you run a business, uh, Kendall Law, you have employees, you have I, you know, I imagine high priced staff in terms of attorneys and paralegals, uh, as well as more administrative staff. Uh, and all that, you know, requires business coming in the door regularly to pay the bills. Talk a little bit about what, at this stage, do you still do business development? Is your business coming oh, in yes. fast enough where it comes into you, you don't worry about, or do you have, actually have to take an active role? And what's that look like? Well, 
Um, luckily, my marketing is this. I go out and I do these. I go to the local association. So I am very active in the community um, as to advertising in that. Um, my but my business development more is, is like I have um, a business coach that I you know meet with at the beginning of the year for two straight days where we look at all of the numbers. We look at the expenses. We look at the people. We look at it. Um, I have been very fortunate. I've been open. It'll be eight years. Um, I've had continued large percentage of growth over the years. This past year was a 30% growth. Uh, we're scheduled for a 20% growth next year. Um, I have a five-year plan that puts us at a, a certain number. So I'm constantly working on the, the, the development and working. Uh, it's it's very difficult because I'm, I am stretched thin because I am still practicing law. I'm still doing the consults. I'm still doing the litigation cases. So sometimes it makes it a little bit hard to do the admin side of, of working on the business instead of in the business. But I'm I'm constantly looking at numbers and 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 what do I need to do to grow. So how do you manage that? Do you have a set amount of time that you do on both those sides of the business or do you I'm trying. Uh it's not always a, a perfect world. Um, but we um I, I set aside focus time like the other day. I set aside um two hours to work on. We're hiring a case manager and I needed to get that role um outlined of what we would be doing with that role. And I set aside the two hours. So every week, um, my whole team is supposed to be doing it, is in general. Um uh is something I started with the whole team is every Friday we look at the calendar, we determine our focus time and every day we have a daily huddle, uh, giving something positive uh, in your focus time. What are you going to complete today? Did you complete the th three things that you wanted to do in your focus time yesterday? And if not, what the barriers are. Um, and so every week I look at the calendar and, you know, when I have certain things, my weeks fluctuate because I, the second week or the third week of the month, I had five speaking engagements. So there was no focus time. So it just really depends on a week to week. But yes, I'm I'm setting aside, like I don't take any appointments on Mondays and Fridays, because those are the days that I'm, you know, getting ready, doing a lot of my manager meetings on Fridays, all just getting, you know, situated for the following week. And then I fit things in. What percentage of your staff is working in the office? Obviously, people go to court and deliver documents and such. But, but 100%. Basically, yeah. And so how important is that for you as far as building your team and your culture? Um, I think for um, I, I've tried once having a hybrid, uh, a, a remote paralegal and it lasted about a week. Um, it just wasn't a fit. I think we are um, on the case manager hire. We're going to try it as a hybrid because I don't think it's something that's essential to be in the office. But I think as an attorney and the legal team and the paralegals that are working on the day-to-day -day paperwork, especially in the eviction side, there's so many papers that need to be reviewed and signed that it just, to me, doesn't make sense. Um, I think it's super important. Um, so the, the, the next position will be something that is more hybrid because um, eventually I'm going to run out of real estate. I mean, I have enough space for so many people, uh, but our parking lot's getting full. So I've got to think of ways to to be um, flexible. But I think that like we do first Friday lunches. So it's just a part of the team building, you know, um, I, I just it's collaborative. I can just somebody one of the attorneys can just walk into my office and go like, I have this problem. What's going on here? Or the paralegal mm -hmm. needs help with something like I, I and then we have the one to ones on our you know case lists. Like, where are we on these cases? I, I, it just to me is important for the collaboration. It seems like anybody who follows you on social media would know that you also 
<clears throat> do a lot of social activities kind of as a group, party things or social things or fundraisers you guys are involved with. So is that a decision you make or that just kind of happened naturally and that's grown over time that you seem to do a bunch as a group as opposed to individuals? No, I think <clears throat> that it was something that just originally, because because in the seven years, four of those were only like me and two people. Um, but once I started to grow the team and and, and talking to my business coach and, and I have a team coach is, is like doing something outside of the office. So we just started it last year. So every quarter uh, we do something. We did a paint and wine. Um, we have done a bowling. Um, we're coming up to do a top golf. Um, we actually have, you know, a Christmas party is the end of the year thing. Um, but it's just a way to, to be away from work and get to know each other better and have that team bonding. But it's brand new. I just started it last year. One of the things that became obvious, you know, when I first started working with your firm, I didn't realize you weren't a probate attorney because to me it was a probate case, but in retrospect, it was really a, a partition action, I think, more than anything else um, that grew. Uh, your client was a probate, my client was, so it was kind of odd. But I noticed, obviously, the next one, um, when my client had hired you already and spoke so highly of you in the space of uh, evictions, uh, that that you really specialize in this and that, I mean, I know, I don't want you to necessarily talk bad about your colleagues, but 90% of attorneys have such a wide variety of practice, none of which they really bring any special value to. And I, and I know that 10% of you really focus in on an area <clears throat> and develop subject matter expertise, experience, procedures that are unique. Was that a conscious decision? Is that something that's worked out over time as you developed your business? How I know you say you started with foreclosures, but you could have gone much broader with real estate law and, and had that credential. How did you end up um, making the business decision to be so narrow in your focus? Yeah, so it just stems from where I came from. My first eight years, I worked for a local firm that worked with real estate agents and brokers uh, in all kinds of things related to real estate. Uh, the partner of that firm would go and speak at the association and at brokers and, and do risk management. Um, so then I did that, the foreclosure firm, which was also in real estate that it, it, your brain can only handle so much. And, and I think that you do a disservice to your client. If you say you do personal injury and bankruptcy and real estate, no, no offense to them, but to me, I don't, and maybe they're just brilliant and can withhold all of that. But, um, our firm is a real estate litigation firm. So 75% of the practice is um, eviction, which just happened naturally. It wasn't what I planned. I didn't want my practice to be so focused there because the stuff that I love to do is partition actions, specific performance, failure to disclose, boundary lines dispute, easement disputes, um, nuisance. Like I thrive in like I, I always use the phrase real litigation, but the hard litig the harder full time, like this is gonna take two years. This is in the, you know, unlimited civil jurisdiction and you know, you have jury trials. I, I'm I'm not downplaying evictions. Evictions are extremely difficult, they're extremely hard, they're so time consuming. Um, but now I have a team to handle them so that I can focus on the 25% that I handle. Uh it just came so naturally once I got one management company and then I got another and then it just started growing and growing and growing. And so I had to start bringing in more team members to cover that portion. Right. Well, I think also such an increasing demand for that niche. Yeah. The market grew and you got your piece of that. 
um, you know, one way or the other. And, and it's interesting, I didn't really realize you do the other things regularly. Thanks for reminder as far as the petition actions in particular, something that comes up. Um, okay, so those are the call. Again, kind of last call for questions. If you're on the Zoom call, raise your hand, put in the chat box. If you're watching it on the live stream on YouTube, Facebook, or LinkedIn, put the questions there and I'll pick that up. I have another question from Temel, and he asks that if a property is sold with a tenant where there's a UD case in process, can the does the buyer step into the prior owner and continue the UD action, or does the UD action have to start over from scratch? A lot of times you, if there's an assignment as a part of the transaction, you can substitute the plaintiff in. Um, it just is sometimes a little bit harder depending on the facts because you need a witness that can testify to certain things. And if you don't have the personal knowledge of that, it makes it harder. If you have like, I think I, um, I think that I had a, a consult with somebody that they said that the prior person was willing to to testify and help and do anything that they needed to do. Um, but uh, it, it's not fairly complicated to substitute a, out a plaintiff after purchase. Okay. So again, it really depends on their motivation and keeping them tied into the deal, or if they have no real facts, if they're just like a investor, they may not be able to help either way. It probably doesn't matter much as long as you substitute them out. So. Um, that's good to know as well. Okay, um, real quick then, just to kind of uh, summarize, uh, our guest today has been Eileen Kendall, Kendall Law, kendalllaw.net on the internet with all the information there, phone number. Uh-oh. Oh, I muted myself. How, how did that happen? <laughs> okay, let's go back there. Okay. There we go. KendallLaw.net is the website with all the contact information, pretty picture of Kendall and her team. And if you scroll down the bottom, map and phone number and all the contact information as well. Um, this has been Probate Weekly. If you want more information, want to come on live, get reminders, uh, go to probateweekly.com, put in your email address, and you'll get reminders. You can also sign up for the podcast versions or YouTube. Continue the conversation on Facebook, on our Facebook group, which is... Uh, uh, a good place to ask questions for referrals, out-of-state attorneys, out-of-state real estate agents, as well as putting your probate-related content. Love to have you there as well. Uh, and then, um, let's see, the last couple of questions I see here online. Let's see if we can pick those up while, while we're here. Uh, vacant properties are listed with a broker. She was agents now report that was vacant to the police station and put a no trespassing sign. Interesting. So are there any, I guess the question uh, being asked is, are there any precautions one can take when you have a, a vacant property? You know, I, I, I now get customers regularly asking me not to post the property, uh, a sign on the property, because that is an invitation to squatters. What do you recommend, if anything, to property management as far as best practices? Uh, now, property managers usually are going to be buildings with multiple and managers who are on site as opposed to single family homes. So what would you recommend to a single family agent um, putting a sign on, not putting a sign on? Can you report to the police the property is vacant? Is there anything else that can be done? Yeah, I think if you can report it and let you know your local police know that it's vacant and to keep an eye out on it. I, I mean, yeah, I think that if you put a you know trespassing sign on it or you know do something that really shows that it's vacant, I would say that you leave a light on, keep the power on, and leave a light on, and 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 make sure that somebody's driving by the property at least once a month. Uh, make sure that all the windows are secured, that you've changed the locks, like definitely changing the locks so that if somebody else had a key from a prior um, being there that you do that. Um, 
and, and really that's it. You know, I, you could even, because there is um, nobody there is you could even put a ring camera on just at least the door um, or have a ring doorbell installed so that you can be able to see that. I mean, we have on ours, uh, we just got us made our secure building because for the first time we had um, irate tenants come to our office. Um, so now we have a secured and it's a, a thumbprint. And if you ring the doorbell, you can see activity and you can see people coming in and out. So you can see that. So and I think that wasn't but a couple hundred dollars. So there's things like that nowadays. Then you can have that. So inexpensive. You know, I, we had a ring door house as well. And as a listing agent, I think those are some of the things we have to offer our clients is checking like I think just give a good checklist, uh, you know, checking the property regularly, checking the windows and doors, changing the locks. Installing Wi-Fi and a ring system is just, you know, it's so inexpensive. When somebody breaks in, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars, perhaps in damage and legal fees. So it's much cheaper to be preventative than to respond afterwards. Okay, I think we covered all the questions. Um, and I guess just kind of as a wrap up, you obviously, you primarily, I think, are working with property management and, and investors and such. But along the way, I know you deal with real estate agents, me being one of them. What are some of the best practices you've seen agents that, you know, get your attention that you're impressed with, and what are some of the mistakes you see real estate agents make looking to get more business that they should avoid? Well, I think that the, the thing that I've been, the two things I've seen recently, although, you know, when I go and talk to agents, they don't see like whether they're just embarrassed to raise their hand or not. One of the things that I saw pretty regularly for a, a, a big period of time is when you're doing the disclosures in leases, um, that you may be giving the disclosure, but you're not checking the right box. Like, for instance, you have the state rent cap just cause uh, you have a single family home that's exempt. You have the um, disclosure attached to the lease, but you didn't check the exemption box. Um, so it's just with anything is making sure attention to detail and making sure those boxes are had. Um, I had one gentleman that called and said that their real estate agent who had been in a couple of failed transactions with them completed the TDS for him and didn't disclose the things that failed in the prior, which caused the prior escrows to fail. Um, I didn't take the case just because of some connections. Um, and it, so it didn't get fleshed out. And so I don't know if it's true. So just making sure that you're not completing paperwork for your client um, uh, that you shouldn't um, and making sure, truly making sure that you're just doing every disclosure, anything that may be coming through that to you. I'm always, I always say, um, you know, if it if you think about it for one second about whether or not I should disclose it, that is something you should disclose because it caught your attention enough for you to think about should I or should I not disclose it. You make a, such a great point. I think sometimes as realtors, we can think of and I, and I know I fall back in the trap when I get lazy, which is ugh, all the paperwork, all the disclosures, all the forms. But they're really meant to protect our client and protect us as agents. And so to take the extra time to fill them out properly or to encourage our clients to fill them up properly and not do it for them is going to save us a lot down the road. So thanks for a reminder on that subject as well. Well, Eileen, look, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I enjoy following you on social media as well, but it's a pleasure to, to you know, learn from you. I appreciate being on the call regularly. I'll put your contact information uh, for those who want to reach out to your firm. Uh, as I said, when I started, uh, you know, I see a lot of real estate agents who recommend this firm or that firm for a standard kind of filing and paper mill, but I, I really believe that agent uh, customers who 
um, consult with you are going to get the right direction and the right strategy. I encourage everybody on the, on the call to take a professional approach to your referrals. And Eileen, I think, is as good as anybody in LA County for sure. Uh, and I guess I should say the greater LA area in the area of eviction. So, Eileen, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you. Thank you, Bill, so much for having me. And for actually, this is Probate Weekly. We do this every Thursday at 4 p.m. Uh, Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we continue the conversation on Facebook at our group, probateweekly.com. Uh, uh, and I encourage you all, if you're real estate agents, to post your probate-related content here. If you want to get more views and share the information with other people, get feedback from agents on your videos or your content, we love to share that information and help each other grow our businesses. That's kind of what I do. And I know uh, Courtney Rollins, for one, has really built a YouTube channel. We've helped him do that as well. And if, you want, if you're want, if you watching this on live stream, want to participate, you can go to probateweekly.com. For your email address, you'll get reminders, as well as you can sign up on the podcast version or YouTube version if you prefer to get it that way. And then lastly, I offer a real estate email marketing masterclass starting next February 21st. It's only $97. Uh, it's an hour long and then four half hour uh, small group sessions because this is the, really the foundation. I built this for my team to come on. I'd love to have you guys join us if you're interested in building your uh, marketing of your business as well. So thank you everybody who participated today. Uh, those who asked questions on YouTube, shout out to Temel uh, and living a uh, life in Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, as always, uh, Matt and uh, uh, Christopher, thank you for participation in your questions. Appreciate it, guys. Have a great week. We'll talk next week. Bye-bye.